And you just heard the reason why people come to Canyon Ridge Baptist Church. (laughs) What a blessing. Take your Bibles this morning. Turn to Psalm chapter 28. Psalm chapter 28. I tell people at Canyon Ridge all the time that if you come to our church, all you have to do is listen to the music. Because sometimes people say, well, you know, some of those new songs, they're weak in theology. And so I was just listening this morning for Brother Tyler to be weak in theology. And I wanted to talk to him later about this. I don't know where he left, went to. Brother Tyler, are you still here? Oh, you're over here, behind me. Yeah, stab me in the back, right. (laughs) So I just started writing down the theology that we were singing about. I thought it'd be a good exercise to see if we were saying anything good. We were saying about the Trinity. We sang about the resurrection. We sang about the redemption. We sing, I'll use a theological term, we sing about the pneumatology, that's the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, we're alive in him, we have victory. We sang about the rapture, I'm looking forward to that day, that's one of my favorites. We sing about the substitutionary death of Christ, his life for mine. I should have died, he died in my place. I love the doctrine of the substitutionary death of Christ. We sing about worship. And we sing about our adoption into the family of God. Now, I'm not saying anything bad about old songs, but I'm telling you, you can't get more theology than the theology I just read, and that's just what I could think of while I wasn't paying attention to the music. Tell me that's not awesome. Would you give Tyler and Pastor a big hand? Because it takes a lot of work to help with the theology of the songs. Hours and hours a week and a month and and just tons of time goes into selecting that. It doesn't just come natural. It it is a lifetime of preparation and work. And man, it was a blessing to me, Brother Tyler and Pastor. Thank you for that. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. I've looked forward. (laughs) It's like I looked up and there was the word. Um, I've... (laughs) I really, that's not even in my nomenclature. I was going to say, I looked, I've, I've looked or anticipated this, and I just said, oh, I look forward to coming. And so there's, there's the theme for the day. Uh, I've looked forward to coming for some time, and so glad that Debbie got to be here with me and have enjoyed our time at the Men's uh, Man Up weekend, and what a great time we had there, and looking forward to a great time this morning. Did I ask you to find Psalm chapter 28 in your Bible? Uh, I don't want to keep you any longer than, than the Scripture would demand, so uh, would you jump up or, or stand? I said jump up. I don't know why I said that. Would you stand with me as we sing, sing Psalm 28? Tyler, come back and lean. It's, it, if you're wondering, like, is he nervous? No, this is what I do at our church, too. So uh, Psalm 28, verse number one. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Psalm 28. To me, Psalm 28 is probably, other than the Garden of Gethsemane passage in the Gospels, Psalm 28 is probably the most difficult passage in the entire Bible, just for me. Now, again, you're, you could have different ones. But it's heart-wrenching to me when you know the background of what's going on here. King David, who by everyone's account would be considered one of the greatest men in the history of the nation of Israel. He's the, sentimal, he's, he's the peak king. He's the number one king in all of Israel. Everybody looks at David with great respect and renown. In the Old Testament, you would have a couple men that would rival him. Moses, obviously, Abraham. Some would even say Elijah, but at the very least, we know that David was a man after God's own heart. David was a great man of God. And because of some sin-filled decisions in David's life, there was some great turmoil that came. And as he's writing Psalm chapter 28, it's a poem, it's a prayer, it's a prophecy. As David is writing Psalm chapter 28, he's writing in the midst of a civil war. It's the second civil war that he's went through. And it's probably the darkest day in the nation of Israel because David's prized son Absalom, the man who was supposed to secede him on the throne, the man who was supposed to be the next king of Israel, Absalom has led an insurrection against his father. And David's best friend, his chief counselor, Ahithophel, has joined the opposition against King David. So in your mind, put, put it like this, that your loved, treasured, valued son is not only in opposition to you, 
but seeking to kill you. He's employed thousands of men to hunt you down in your old age and to destroy you. He's made a mockery of you on top of the palace for the whole world to see. I mean, it's terrible. The nation is in ruin. Everything that you've worked for, everything that you've lived for, everything that you've desired is really up in the air. You're not sure what's going to become. What you do know is that you're running for your life and a few friends are with you. And that's where we pick up this psalm. It's a difficult psalm. It's challenging. I love my dad. I'm close to my dad. I have a good relationship with my dad. I couldn't imagine if my father turned his back on me. I don't have sons. I have daughters. I couldn't imagine if they turned their back on me. That'd be hard enough. But imagine if they were trying to have you killed and were doing everything they possibly could to destroy you. I want you to see the darkness of this passage, and then I want you to see the delight in this passage. Psalm 28, unto thee will I cry, O God, my rock. Be not silent to me, lest if thou be silent to me, I become like them that go down to the pit. Literally saying like them that go to hell, the, the, the noun, the place, the proper noun, to hell. Hear the voice of my supplication when I cry unto thee, when I lift up my hands toward thy holy oracles. Draw me not away with the wicked, with the workers of iniquity, which speak peace to their neighbor, but mischief is in their hearts. Give them according to their deeds, according to the wickedness of their endeavors. Give them after the work of their hands and render to them their deserts or their desert or their reward. Because they regard not the works of the Lord, nor the operation of his hands. He shall destroy them and not build them up. Blessed be the Lord God, because he hath heard the voice of my supplication. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusteth in him, and I am helped. Therefore my heart greatly rejoiceth. With my song will I praise him. The Lord is their strength, and he is the saving strength of his anointed. Save thy people and bless thine inheritance. Feed them also and lift them up forever. May the Lord bless his word. You may be seated. As we open this psalm, we are immediately struck by David's prayer. He is saying unto thee, O Lord, my rock, be not silent. He's, it's a prayer of fellowship. David, in this time of great crisis, immediately needs communion with God. I don't know if you've ever been there. I assume that you have if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. In times of difficulty, in times of trial, when no one could comfort you, when no one could help you, you have a God to go to, and he's a friend for sure that sticks closer than a brother. But I don't know if you've ever been to that place where you may, and you just have to cry out to God because if he doesn't answer, there is no comfort that can be had apart from the comfort of the Lord. That's where David is. It's a desperate prayer. Hear my supplication when I cry unto thee, when I lift up my hands toward thy holy oracles. God, ye, I'm crying. I'm crying out in despair. Uh, he's, he's lifting his hands as, uh, to God. He's, he's pleading with God. It's, a, it, it's not really a lifting of hands like we would do to worship or, or something like that, just an exaltation to the Lord and his goodness. It's more a cry in verse number two of like, God, where are you? That's what he's saying. I lift up my hands to you, God. He's praying for protection. Verse number three, draw me not away with the wicked, with the workers of iniquity, which speak peace to their neighbor, but mischief is in their heart. These, the, the, he's saying, don't draw me away. God, I know the end of the wicked. Don't take me. Don't make me like them. God, these people, they're, they're, they're hypocritical. They're, they'll tell you one thing while they have an intent to do something completely different. They're a snake in the grass. You think they're fine, but they're going to bite in return. He goes, God, that's what these people are. They're, there's no resolution with them mischief or evil this word mischief is a is an adjective describing describing the evil nature of their heart god mischief is in their heart here's kind of what david is saying god i got nobody to go to but you i'm not sure god who i can trust 
I, I've, been, I've been violated and, and people have turned their back on me that have committed to me that they would always love me, we'd always be friends, that we would always stay close together. I mean, in other passages, David talks about Ahithophel, that we sought sweet counsel together. We went to the temple and we worshiped together. We prayed together. I mean, we are brothers, man. We've went through difficult times of war together, but we've went through awesome times of worship together. Now you've turned your back on me. And David is distraught. David is sad. David feels rejected. And David's human. Look at verse number four. Give them according to their deeds. I like David sometimes. Because he's like me. I don't know about you. You guys are all probably really holy. But at Canyon Ridge, we know. The pastor's got it messed up sometimes. And David is praying, God, give them what they deserve. They're bad people. Reward them for their evil. This is what's called an imprecatory prayer. The word imprecatory just means a curse. David's literally like praying, God, please curse them. (laughs) Nothing sounds like loving Jesus like this prayer to me. I love this sometimes. I live in California, and I hate the Lakers. I don't care who you like, I hate the Lakers. If you don't know who the Lakers are, it's a basketball team that LeBron James plays for. Though I like LeBron James, I prayed an imprecatory prayer for the Lakers after they won their last championship. And let me just tell you, my imprecatory prayers work. The whole franchise has fallen apart. Lord, reward them for their evil deeds. I'm kidding about the Lakers. I'm not kidding about what David went through. David prayed, Lord, give them according to the wickedness of their endeavor. They're trying to destroy your people. They're trying to destroy your kingdom. Give them after the works of their hands. Render to them their desert, their reward, or what is deserved. They don't regard your works, Lord. The operation of their hands, or, or of your hands, God, they don't care at all about what you're trying to do here. They don't give a rip about you, Lord. You need to, rem- it's like David's reminding the Lord. And how many of you have ever been in a prayer time and you've reminded God of a few things? I don't think that's always, I mean, we have an example here. God doesn't judge David for that. David's just crying out from his heart. Like, God, please give them what they deserve. Reward them for the operation or for the activity that they've been doing. God's going to, this is what David says, God's going to destroy them. He's not going to build them up. And then notice verse number six. Blessed be the Lord because he hath heard the voice of my supplication. Notice David's declaration of dependence. His declaration of dependence. In America, we are an independent group of people. If you travel the world, we are the most independent people on the face of the planet. Matter of fact, when you travel the world, and I know many of you have traveled more than me, I've had the privilege of traveling all over the world, but if you travel the world, you can pretty much point out Americans just by the way that we walk. I mean, literally, I, I, was, I was in an airport, we were getting, coming back from Israel, and I was in an airport in Istanbul, Turkey, and, I was, and we were with 21 people, or, or I'm sorry, we were with 150 people, and, and apart from our group, I looked over at this airport in Istanbul, Turkey, and I just saw the way that this guy was walking, and my first thought was, I wonder what part of the country he's from. You know why? Because he had an independent walk. He didn't care what the sign said. He didn't care what the people told him to do, other than security. You don't want to mess with security in Turkey. And um, they don't take that lightly. They don't really argue in the rest of the world like we do here. But he's just walking like, well, like normal. He's independent. Notice what David, he's praying a prayer of dependence. I'm not against independence. I love it. I'm an American. I'm happy to be independent. I'm glad for the freedoms that we have. I want to pass that down to the next generation. But notice we learned something here. David says, blessed be the Lord God because he hath heard the voice of my supplication. The Lord is my strength. I'm not my own strength. I'm in the middle of a civil war and I cannot win this civil war in my own power. God has to do this. He's my strength. You ever been in that place when you're so down and so low and in such a difficult place that if God does not empower you, you will not succeed? 
That's where David was, like, God is my strength. God is my power. The power with which God leads his people. And God is my shield, my protector. And God, my heart trusteth in, in, in him, in the Lord. And I am helped, I'm aided, I'm, I'm given material aid and non-material encouragement. In other words, God gives me what I need emotionally and physically. God is my helper. This is David's cry. It's been throughout Scripture we see that in times of crisis, we have to go to the Lord. In times of difficulty, we have to go to God because he is our strength and he is our shield and he is our help and he is our protector. He is, our, he is the Holy Spirit, this is the great paraclete, the, the, the one who comes alongside and encourages us. Can, can I just stop by way of a, 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 of a little bit of exhortation and say this to all of us? We are not going to successfully live the Christian life to the level God wants us to live it in our own power and our own ability. We have to walk with the Lord to get all that the Lord wants us to have. You can't do it on your own. You can't do it in reading of books or really you can't even live for Christ. So I'm just going to read the Bible all the time. Well, that's great. That's awesome. That's wonderful. But you'll not live the Christian life to the level of success God wants you to have until you are totally and completely dependent upon him. And David's cry of dependence. And then we see in verse 7 and 9 something that the first time I read this really intrigued me. Kind of blew my mind, if you will. He's going through, now you remember, he's going through the, wor- the darkest time possibly in the history of the nation of Israel, certainly the, the outside of their crucifixion of Christ, certainly the darkest time in his entire time on the throne. And notice what he says, verse number seven. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusteth in him, and I am helped. Therefore, now we know hermeneutically or the study of the Bible, whenever you see the word therefore or but, it's connecting two thoughts or wherefore. It's connecting two things. And so you always have to look at the therefore and bring the, the first into the second. So we, we, we can see that they're going through a time of crisis and David has prayed these prayers and he's talking to the Lord and the Lord is my strength and my shield and, and therefore I am, he- or, or, and I am helped. Therefore... Because even in the midst of crisis, now get the idea, even in the midst of crisis, God is going to protect me, God is going to strengthen me, God is going to empower me, and I am going to trust him, and he is going to help me. And even in this crisis, because of who God is, therefore, well, therefore what? I'm going to be delivered? And somebody says, therefore, I'll take back over the kingdom. We know that happens, but that's not what he says. He doesn't know that's going to happen when he writes this this psalm. He has no idea what's going to happen. But he says, in the midst of crisis, I've prayed my prayers. I'm trusting in the Lord. And because I have total trust in the Lord, even in the midst of the darkest time of my life, therefore, my heart greatly rejoices or rejoiceth. And with song... Will I praise him? Now imagine for a moment that you're one of David's trusted advisors now. Not before with Hithophel, but now. And he's over on the side of the camp, and you know that he's praying, and you can hear him praying, and you can hear him weeping. And it isn't long that he's over here on the side of the camp, and he's just weeping, and he's on his knees, and he's just crying out to God, God, Do you know what they're doing? And God, with their mouth they speak good things, but mischief is in their heart. And God rewards them. And you can hear the whole camp is silent because just like us, when other people pray that are going through a tough time, we listen too. We're getting a little emotional connection with their heart. So everybody's listening. David's praying, oh God, God, would you you return to them their reward? Would you give them their just dessert? Lord, would would you reward them for their evil behavior? Lord... You are the strength of my heart and my shield. Lord, you have helped me. Therefore, because you've helped me, I'm going to rejoice in you. And then you know what he starts doing? 
he starts singing. Now imagine he's singing. And David could sing. Unlike me, David could sing. So imagine Tyler is sitting here singing. And you're with me over here with the people that aren't allowed to sing. Well, I'm in the non-singing crowd. I'm the best non-singer in our church. And you're over here, and you identified. You totally identified with the suffering, but now you hear the singing. You got the suffering, because you're with King David. You're running for your life. Uh, uh, Absalom has put a price on your head, too, because you're helping his dad. Ahithophel wants to have you killed. He's having your family arrested. I mean, you're suffering as well. David's suffering more, but you are certainly helping him bear the burden of suffering. So you get the suffering, but then you hear the guy over here singing. With my mouth, I'll speak praise to the Lord. And I don't know what psalm that he is singing. The scripture doesn't give us insight into that. One of my favorite songs right now is the Getty song, The Lord is My Salvation. And man, I just love that song. And maybe he's singing a psalm like that or a song like that. And he starts singing and you look at your friends and like, has he lost his mind? He's singing. He's singing in a time of war. He's singing in a time of attack. He's singing when everybody has, 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 has left him. And it's just us few 600 men. And we're being, we're being chased by thousands of men. And Joab is kind of a loser anyway. But Joab is with us. And, and David is singing. And David stands up and he walks over and he goes, Hey, if you guys were, are wondering why I'm singing, I just want you to know this. With my song, will I praise the Lord? The Lord, verse number eight, is my strength. He is the saving strength of his anointed. Save thy people and bless thine inheritance. Feed them also and lift them up forever. I will greatly, in the middle of verse number seven, therefore will I greatly rejoice. That literally means a celebration. David moves, moves from suffering, imprecatory prayers, prayers of great lament, and he stands up. And, and, and get the idea here. He makes the decision to celebrate who God is. He makes the decision to celebrate who God is. Notice something of the text, because I think we preach the word around here. And the text determines what we're going to say. So notice in the text, he determined to celebrate, but his circumstances hadn't changed. Ahithophel, because of his prayer, didn't go, you know what, David, my bad, I was wrong. Absalom didn't come find him and say, Dad, I am so sorry. Can we please restore the relationship? No, none of that happened. His circumstance stayed the same, but he determined to celebrate who God is, not because of the condition of his circumstance, but because of the character of God. Yeah. The Lord is their strength. And you know, it seems like from the text, now this is in my mind how it happened, is that David, the Lord is, he, he moves from the personal pronoun, I will praise him, to saying the Lord is their strength, and he is the saving strength of his anointed, talking about the people of Israel, save thy people and bless thine inheritance. It seems as though David's decision to celebrate had an impact on the people that were around him. In my mind, I see, him, I see him in that place of suffering, and then he starts singing, and the crowd's going, dude, what's going on with David? And David comes over, and he says, hey, guys, I don't know where we're going, and I don't know how we're going to get there, and I'm not exactly sure, but I can tell you this. God is the strength of my soul. God is the song of my heart. God is still good. God is our shield. Guys, I want you to remember, we're going to keep praising the Lord in times of good, and we're going to praise him in times of bad. The Lord giveth. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We're not going to run from him. We're still going to celebrate who God is and what he's done. So guys, I just don't know what else to tell you, but I command right now that we have a celebration service as to who the character of God is. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. When he was 
being tried, he used the word buffeted, that literally means to be hit. When he is being buffeted by Satan, he had a thorn in the flesh. And he prayed three times, he asked God to remove it. And God said, no, my grace is sufficient for thee. And Paul said, most gladly, therefore, because God's given me his grace, most gladly, therefore, will I glory. Will I glory in mine infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He said, God didn't take it away. Matter of fact, he goes on to say this in verse number 10. Therefore, I take pleasure in my infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. David, times of crisis, chose to serve, celebrate who God is. Paul, times of great physical suffering, chose to celebrate, serve, worship who God is. Here's the point that I want to make. You have a moral obligation to happiness. What do you mean moral obligation? You are morally obligated to be happy. You say, well, where do you get that? Well, Psalm 28. You have a moral obligation to happiness. This doesn't mean that all circumstances are going to make you happy. Absolutely not. Happiness is not determined by our circumstances. There will be times of weeping. Later, Psalm chapter 30, verse number, t- number 5, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. We learn in the Sunday school hour, the Old Testament noun, blessed as sure, is a noun for a person's state of bliss. The New Testament Greek word is makarismos, and it means to consider or count blessed. In Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, makarismos is the man that, uh, or, or uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, makarismos are the poor in spirit. Makarismos are the humble state of bliss of an individual. God's idea for us is that we are to live as followers of Jesus Christ, as the happiest people on the planet. And I would submit to you biblically, you have a moral obligation to be happy. Now, I don't know if you agree with me yet, so now I'm going to defend what I just said. Because I was a youth pastor for years. The Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is love and then joy. The fruit of the Spirit of saved people is joy. And that word joy means rejoicing or gladness. It is joy that is given by the Spirit of God. And he wants all people who follow him to have this joy. We said it earlier, godly people are happy people. And if circumstances determined our happiness, then David could never be happy. Because he was in the worst state you could possibly be in. We get in bad moods. We treat other people negatively. We, we, as a matter of fact, you ever walk into a room and everybody's happy till that one dude in a bad mood comes in? And the whole room changes because of one person in a bad mood? Okay, we don't want to talk about the guy sitting next to you. So, you ever had a family function and the four-year-old starts throwing a fit? And they're not happy? and it changes the whole complexion of the room. Now, I I love children. We have a daycare at our church. We have 84 kids that come to our daycare every day, but I don't like children that cry. (laughs) So if you have kids, I'm gonna love your kids all day long, but the second they start crying, you better come running because they ain't staying with me very long. And if there's nobody there, I'll take them to the fire station because you can drop them off for free. I'm not kidding. Even when my kids started crying, I just hand them back to Debbie like, I don't know what to do with them. I tried giving them a spanking. That didn't help. (laughs) But you ever been at a restaurant and everything's going well, people are having a good time, and then that one family with that kid is sitting over there and the kid starts screaming, and mom and dad are acting like the kid ain't screaming. And you're like trying to talk, and all you can hear is like, ah, and kids throwing stuff and nailing you with chips in the head, and there's salsa everywhere. And mom and dad are just sitting over there, you know, just having a grand old time. I'm sitting there thinking, I'm calling CPS. <laughs> so this is what I do, because I'm not always a good Christian, but I'm a good citizen. So 
I stand up, if we're like at a fast food place that has a, a fountain drink place, I don't drink fountain drinks very often, but if I do, I'll walk up. I'll just stare at the parents. And I work on my death stare. Some of you are like, I can't believe he's, he's saying this. None of this is an exaggeration. You can ask my wife. <laughs> I got a concealed carry permit because of children. <laughs> Not because I'd ever heard them, but I'm afraid of what their parents might do when I death stare them for the kid crying. Like, come on. How many of you have ever been on a plane? Come on, tell the truth. You've been on a plane. You travel very much. You do this. You start looking around. And, and I get southwest so that I can stay away from the kids. Because it's open seating. And if a family walks in with a kid and the kid sits close to me, you know what I do? Move seats. Why? Because I don't want to hear crying. Because when I see people coming in the airport and they got their kids, it's just a matter of time. And I understand. Debbie always tells me, Chris, they get pressure in their ears. I said, well, when they start crying, I get pressure in my head too. And I want to cause problems too. I want to start screaming. And so I, I just, I just oh, it really bothers me because one, one crier, one bad attitude, like I have about kids, one bad attitude can change the whole dynamic of a room. Just one. Yeah. <laughs> you ever been like in a Bible study on Wednesday? Do you guys do Bible study Wednesday night or Sunday morning? Whenever y'all do Bible studies, like, like Sunday school or we call them community Bible studies, whenever you do your Bible study time, you ever been having a good time and then that one dude who had a bad day at work brought his bad day to work into the Bible study and he plops down and the whole mood went from like, hey, let's celebrate Jesus to, hey, let's get Joe out of the room. <laughs> Oh, I hear there's a water lake in California. We'd say, I hear there's a water lake in Arizona. Go check it out. <laughs> Why? Because he changed the whole room. I would submit to you, you have a moral obligation to happiness. I would submit to you that you have, if you're saved this morning, you have all the power you need to be the happiest person in the room. You say, well, well I'm just not a happy person. Well, if you're saved, you should be. You're morally obligated to be. Before you disagree with me, let me establish my point a little bit more. I think this is very applicable. Dad, have you ever come home and brought your bad day to work home? And the whole family, as soon as you get home, they run and hide because they can tell, oh, Dad's in one of his moods. See, it was funny when we were talking about the kids, <laughs> and it was my problem, but now that it's your problem, everybody's quiet, like, oh, I don't like this one anymore. <laughs> he could talk about how bad he is, but whoa, I came home in a bad, or how about this? How about you're driving through the fine streets of liberal Kansas, and you don't have your seatbelt on, and Officer 5096 spots you. And he lights you up. That's your pastor's badge number. <laughs> it's public knowledge if you didn't know that. <laughs> if it wasn't, it is now. <laughs> and he lights you up and you get a ticket. And you bring that home to your family. And you change the whole course in some cases of, for weeks of your family. Because you decided not to rejoice because circumstances didn't go your way. Maybe you're not even like the verbal bad mood guy. Maybe you're just like the sullen guy. You're the sullen guy that walks into the house and you just go to your room. You're not a bad mood guy, but you're not a good mood guy either, or lady. You just sit in the room and you read your Harry Potter novel or whatever you do and you play video games and you just sit in there and you have no interaction with folks around you. Your kids don't really know you. Your 
wife doesn't really know you, if you're single, your friends don't really know you, you just come in and it's all about you and you just, you just have to get away. Every, literally, I understand sometimes about getting away, but you get away every single night and you've done it for years and you don't bring any type of joy or happiness into your home. You walk in, you shower, you change your clothes, you do your thing. We have guys that we're working with all the time that do this and, and they walk in, they walk to their room and they get on Netflix and they watch Netflix for four, five, six, seven hours until they go to bed and they can't figure out why, why it is their, their family's not happy. Because after all, Pastor, I've not said anything bad. Right, dude, but you haven't said anything. You don't have a moral obligation for silence. You have a moral obligation for happiness. You say, well, I just can't control my mood. That's a lie. Let me prove it to you. So stick with me for a second. Let's say that I was the world's wealthiest man. It's a dream. I'd probably give it all away so I wouldn't be wealthy very long. But let's just say that I was the world's wealthiest man for the sake of the discussion. And I said, okay, anybody in the room this morning, you got to sign a contract with me. But I'll sign a contract with you that for the next year, every week that you go one full week without losing your temper and you're happy for 168 hours in a row, or if you're not happy through the power of the Spirit of God, you fake happiness. Literally, you fake happiness because you're morally obligated to be happy. And we're morally obligated to control our mouth, our tongue, and our emotions. I'm just waiting for you to let that sit in because that's like a Bible truth. Keep thy heart with all diligence. Out of it are the issues of life. So, so you got to either be happy or fake happiness for 168 hours. And by the way, all of us fail, but every single week that you do that, if you mess up, that's fine. We'll start over again the next week. But every week that you do that, I'll give you $100,000. This is what's going to happen. You're going to be driving down the fine streets of Liberal without your seatbelt on. And Officer 5096 is going to pull you over, flash his lights, and write you a ticket. And you're going to take the ticket, and you're going to go, I wish I hadn't done that. But you're going to go, thank you, officer. I appreciate you protecting the fine streets of Liberal Kansas. You say, well, why would I do that? Because in the back of your mind, you're thinking, this $50 ticket or whatever it costs, $30 ticket, is not worth me losing $100,000. And you're going to put that ticket in your car, and you're going to walk in, and you're going to walk into your wife and go, hey, sweetheart, just want you to know on the way home, I got a ticket from Officer Prater. He's such a good pastor and such a good cop, all about the truth. And I want you to know, we need to write a check right now to send that to the fair city of Liberal because nothing says government intrusion like making you wear a seatbelt, and I love it. And she's going to go, what are you talking, you love it? Oh, babe, I love it. Come here, let's make out. And uh, you're going to make out for a while. The kids are going to be going, oh, Dad, that's gross. You're going to be like, you know what? It is gross. Why don't you guys just go to your room for the rest of your life? Your mom and I are going to hang out, and we're going to have fun. Uh, the kids are going to go to their room for a while. You're going to go to your room for a while. And you're just going to have fun, and then you're going to go grab the kids out. Hey, let's go to the park. Really, the park? It's Tuesday night. you got to be at work at 5 a.m. tomorrow. I know, 5 a.m., no big deal. I'll get plenty of sleep, and that's why God created Red Bull. And so you're going to go, you're going to grab the kids, you're going to take them to the park, you're going to play, you're going to push the kids on the swing, you're going to probably push them too high, they're going to fall, they're going to cry really bad, and you're just unlike me. You're going to hold them and go, isn't that precious? Oh, honey, your wife comes to take the kids. No, baby, I got this one. You take the kids. You're changing diapers. You're having a good time. You're giving away flowers. You're high-fiving people at work. And, and at the end of the week, you're calling me up. Hey, Chris, guess what? What? 168 hours. Happy the whole time. All right. Checks in the mail. You know why you're going to do that? Because in truth, you're in total control of your emotions. Before you think I'm lying, let me illustrate my point again. I got lots of these. I read a book. <laughs> you ever been in the middle of a fight with your s significant spouse? 
or your insignificant spouse. Who says this stuff? So you ever got in a fight with your spouse? I mean, you're just going off and they're going off and it's a heated discussion about laundry. Because let's be honest, most of our fights are worthless. I mean, we we fight about the dumbest of things. I mean, how many of you ever got in a fight because your spouse lost something? Oh, man, I do that all the time. Because I'm a very, somewhat like to think of myself as organized. And my wife likes to think of organization as a sin. And so, (laughs) it's not bad. We've been married 25 years. She, believe me, she has a lot to say. And sometimes those two don't coexist well. But even in the midst of our argument about losing stuff, you know what? It's never happened. We've never found anything. (laughs) Because we're too busy arguing. And in the midst of your argument about losing stuff or whatever it can be, and it's, boy, it's heated. It's really heated. How many of you know what I'm talking about, those heated arguments? I'm not talking about, like, violent or anything, but you're questioning whether or not the institution of marriage was ever God's real intent or a cause of the fall, or because of the fall, I should say. And it was God's intent. Marriage is awesome. I love marriage. 25, Debbie and I have been married 25 years, and I've enjoyed 18 of them. It's been awesome. We had a few rough ones there. And God's given us a great marriage. I love it. But in the middle of that argument, your boss calls. And he's calling, and you know he's calling to tell you that you're going to get a promotion. And with the promotion comes a pay raise. And you're in the middle of, of, of arguing with your wife, and you've told the kids to shut up and go to their room, and you threw spaghetti at them or whatever. And, and they go to their room, and you're sitting there all by, you know, just you and her, and you're brooding one with another, and she's giving comebacks, and you're giving comebacks, and your hands are exacerbated, and you just, the phone rings, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on! You look and see it's your boss. Hey, George, how's it going? No, things are great. How many of you know that feeling? Yeah, everybody said yeah, and a few of you are honest enough to raise your hand, yeah. You know why? Because you control your emotions. You control your happiness. If you didn't control them, you wouldn't have a moral obligation. One philosopher said this, the happier you act, the happier you feel. The truth is, our actions we think, are determined by our feelings. But our feelings respond to our behavior. How you act should influence your feelings more than your feelings influence your behavior. You ever hear of the placebo effect? Like they test two drugs, one's a sugar pill, one's a real drug, and they want to see the placebo effect. How does this affect, how does a sugar pill that's told to the participant that it's the real drug, how does it affect this person's body in comparison to the person who took the real drug? In a New York Times article entitled, Placebos Proved So Powerful Even Experts Are Surprised, doctors describe studies where fake hair products grew hair on balding heads. Some of you just need to start thinking hair. Or whatever, I don't know. Maybe you like being bald, that's fine too. Many times I wish I was. Sham surgeries have diminished swelling in the knees, so what they would do with these people that had major knee problems, they would put them under, they would give them just like a a cursory incision on the knee, Uh, cursory is the wrong word, but just a, a light incision on the knee and stitch it back up and tell them they had major surgery and study it, and they would literally watch the swelling go down on the knee and the strength come back to the leg when when they had done absolutely no surgery at all, just the placebo effect. Because they thought, oh, well, my knee's better. Placebos are about 55 to 60% effective as most active medications like aspirin and codeine for controlling pain. This is what the article goes on to say. A simple change in mindset, thinking they were taking a drug that would alleviate pain, was powerful enough to change the pain. There's the reverse placebo effect. There was a study done in Japan a couple of years ago where they took 13 students that were highly allergic, highly allergic to uh, poison ivy, 
And they took 13 of them and they, they took their left hand and they said, we're rubbing on your arm poison ivy. And they rubbed poison ivy, uh, the, the kids thought, on their left arm, 13 of them. But they weren't rubbing poison ivy on them at all. They were rubbing just a regular shrub on their arm, all 13 of them. Only two of the people who were highly allergic had been clinically proven to be highly allergic to poison ivy, more than the average person. And they rubbed it on their left arm. Only two of them ever broke out in a rash. And then they took those same 13 kids a week later, and they told them, we are ru not rubbing poison ivy on your right arm, and they rubbed poison ivy on their right arm. But let me get this backwards. Okay, so they, they, th this is where illustrations break down when the guy speaking messes them up. So they took the 13 kids, and they, they rubbed real poison ivy on them. Only two of them broke out because they told them it wasn't. And then they took the same 13 kids, and they told them they weren't rubbing poison ivy on their arm, and they rubbed poison ivy on it. And, uh, uh, or, yeah, and none of them broke out. I should have read the illustration. Sorry, Pastor. Cut my love offering. That's a slow rolling joke that Bobby got. Thanks. Some people say, well, pastor, I struggle with being happy. What do I do? I got four things to help you. Just four things. Number one, go to God regularly for happiness help. If your church is like mine, there are some people who by nature seem happier than others. If you're one of the others, you need to go to God directly for help. You have a moral obligation to your children to be happy. Some people are just born less happy. I've got two daughters. They're 20 and 23. One of them has struggled with happiness literally her entire life. We talk about this pretty regularly. And she's started praying every day, God, just help me to be happy. Just help me to be happy. God, I can't be happy without you. I've got to have your help. You've got to go to God directly for happiness help every single day. You say, well, I'm quiet and introverted. I'm not extroverted like you. Totally fine. I get that. But extroverted people, that doesn't mean that we're happy. We can be extroverted and angry at the same time. My, my, my besetting sin, the sin I struggle with the most, is the sin of anger. I'll be really honest with you. I have to pray regularly for happiness. I knew I was struggling. I hadn't gotten upset with anybody. But when two of our pastors at our church came to me, and they said, Pastor, are you doing all right? You, you, you seem a little distant lately. I knew that I wasn't being as happy as I thought I was. And so I had to go back to my, my prayer closet, if you will. I have a little study in our church. And I just have been asking God, God, help me to be happy. I don't seem happy. I seem like a discouragement to people. Even though that's not what I want in my life, even though that's not what I'm going for, God, I just, I don't, I, I'm not perceived as being happy right now. And I have an obligation to be happy. Not frivolous, not silly. Those are two separate things. Genuinely happy, a state of bliss. God, bring the happiness into my life that I can exhibit it to people around me. Secondly, go to a trusted godly friend who will be honest with you. Go to a trusted godly friend who will be honest with you. A lot of us have friends that won't be honest with us. That's why they're our friends. <laughs> They tell us what we want to hear. We have a principle that we teach in life at Canyon Ridge, and it's called the bad friend principle. You ever see somebody like wear really ugly clothes that they spent a lot of money on, and they think they look good? How many of you know what I'm talking about? Don't, we're not thinking about you, by the way, but you know somebody like that? You know that they looked in the mirror and they asked a friend, hey, I'm not sure about this, what do you think? And their friend is a bad friend because the bad friend goes, oh, sweetheart, you just look amazing in that. And so she's wearing it with confidence and it's confidently horrible. It's just bad. Well, that principle runs all the way through. A lot of times people will select friends simply because they tell them what they want to hear. You've got to select friends who will be honest with you. I've got a friend in Hawaii. His name is Anthony King. He's a church planner there, friend. And he's not my friend just because he's in Hawaii, but it does have Hawaii benefits. I get to go see him pretty regularly. So that's why he's one of my best friends. But he's one of my best friends as well because he's always honest with me. And, and we'll be together, and I'll just be talking. And he'll look at me, and he goes, man, you have a terrible attitude. You need to shut up and knock it off. And you say, how do you feel about that? Fine. Why? Because I have a terrible attitude and I need to shut up and knock it off. And I need somebody to speak truth into my life because honestly, I get blinded sometimes and so do you. And so I need somebody in my life to say, hey, Chris, you're being an idiot. 
Knock it off. I went to New York with my wife, and while we were there, we found out that one of my dear friends, Pastor Fergus Tunnell, who pastors in Clovis, New Mexico, he was there as well. Same time, we didn't plan it together. We just both showed up in New York together, staying a half a mile apart in motels. And so, where else would you stay in New York? Central Park? But... We're staying together and we're walking through New York and my wife loves to buy things for everyone but me. And so if you've ever been to New York, you know there's stuff to buy everywhere. And after a while, I'm like, Debbie, stop buying stuff. And she's like, why? I'm like, well, number one, we don't have luggage. She goes, oh, I'll buy more luggage. It's cheap over here. It's the knockoff stuff. No. And Ferg, Ferg was with me and Ferg goes, why don't you just shut up and let your wife do what she wants? She works harder than you do to keep stuff afloat around there. Now you just shut up and let her do what she wants. He said, what'd you do? I shut up and let her do what she wants. Why? Because I had a trusted friend in my life who was honest with me, and I was being a punk to my wife, and he was being helpful to me. He said, well, I don't know if I could be that vulnerable with somebody. Yeah. See, I've made a choice to, to the best of my ability, with the help of God and dear friends, to be as happy as I could possibly be. And I need them to speak into my life. Number three, Remind yourself that the second product of salvation is joy. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. The second you got saved, the Holy Spirit moved into you. Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 13, in whom we have redemption through his blood. If you're here today and you're not saved, let me tell you, the first obligation you have is to trust Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. To come all the way in, not just believe he's a good God, not just believe Jesus is a good guy, but to receive him by faith and faith alone as your Savior. There is no true joy and true happiness apart from a deep personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And number four, think on good things. Think on good things. You have a moral obligation to be happy, so think about happy things. Book of Proverbs, I think it's chapter 23, verse number seven says, as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Philippians chapter four, verse number eight says, finally, my brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Think on good things. I, I don't like to watch sad things. My wife will watch sad romance stuff. I don't like to watch sad stuff. It doesn't help me. I don't like to listen to sad music. I like to listen to happy music. Even music that I listen to that we wouldn't sing in church. Like one of my new favorite songs is that 60s song, uh, mid-60s song, Sunshine, Lollipops, and Rainbows. You might think, well, that's stupid. I listen to that song almost every day. Why? It just makes me smile on the inside. You say, well, the world's not about sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows. I know that, but I wish it was. I know we go through difficult times. I know we go through challenges. I'm not, I'm not burying my head in the sand, and neither should you. But think on things that are true, and things that are lovely, and things that are just, and things that are honest, and things that are pure, and things that are of good report. Just think on those. I, I told the guys, that's why I don't watch political news shows anymore. Why? Because I just get infuriated. It doesn't help me. I have a moral obligation to be happy. I've been in good moods and I've watched the wrong thing and it caused me to be in a real, real bad mood. Our prayer this morning is that we'll be a happy people. And happiness starts with knowing Christ and living for Him and going to Him for happiness and having some good friends around us and, and reminding ourselves that joy is a product of salvation and thinking on good things. Father, we could continue.